Book Two, Chapter Seven, of the Lancashire Witches. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Andy Minter. The Lancashire Witches, A Romance of Pendle Forest, by William Harrison Ainsworth. Book Two, Pendle Forest. Chapter Seven, The Perambulation of the Boundaries. The lane along which Richard Asherton galloped in pursuit of Mother Chattox made so many turns, and was, moreover, so completely hemmed in by high banks and hedges, that he could see nothing on either side of him, and very little in advance. But, guided by the clatter of hoofs, he urged Merlin to his utmost speed, fancying he should soon come up with the fugitives. In this, however, he was deceived. The sound that had led him on became fainter and fainter, till at last it died away altogether, and on quitting the lane and gaining the moor, where the view was wholly uninterrupted, no traces either of witch or reeve could be discerned. With a feeling of angry disappointment, Richard was about to turn back, when a large black greyhound came out from an adjoining clough and made towards him. The singularity of the circumstance induced him to halt and regard the dog with attention, on nearing him, the animal looked wistfully in his face, and seemed to invite him to follow, and the young man was so struck by the dog's manner that he complied, and had not gone far, when a hare of unusual size and grey with age bounded from beneath a gorse-bush and speeded away, the greyhound starting in pursuit. Aware of the prevailing notion that a witch most commonly assumed such a form when desirous of escaping or performing some act of mischief, such as drying the milk of kine, Richard at once came to the conclusion that the hare could be no other than Mother Chattox, and without pausing to inquire what the hound could be, or why it should appear at such a singular and apparently fortunate juncture, he at once joined the run, and cheered on the dog with whoop and hollo. Old as it was, apparently, the hare ran with extraordinary swiftness, clearing every stone wall and other impediment in the way, and more than once cunningly doubling upon its pursuers. But every feint and stratagem were defeated by the fleet and sagacious hound, and the hunted animal at length took to the open waste, where the run became so rapid that Richard had enough to do to keep up with it. Though Merlin, almost as furiously excited as his master, strained every sinew to the task. In this way the chasers and the chased scoured the dark and heathy plain, skirting moss-pool and clearing dyke, till they almost reached the butt-end of Pendle Hill, which rose like an impassable barrier before them. Hitherto the chances had seemed in favour of the hare, but they now began to turn, and as it seemed certain she must fall into the hound's jaws, Richard expected every moment to find her resume her natural form. The run, having brought him within a quarter of a mile of barley, the rude hovels composing which little booth were clearly discernible. The young man began to think the hag's dwelling must be among them, and that she was hurrying thither as to a place of refuge. But before this could be accomplished, he hoped to effect her capture, and once more cheered on the hound, and plunged his spurs into Merlin's sides. An obstacle, however, occurred which he had not counted on, Directly in the course taken by the hare lay a deep, disused limestone quarry, completely screened from view by a fringe of brushwood. When within a few yards of this pit, the hound made a dash at the flying hare, but eluding him, the latter sprang forward, and both went over the edge of the quarry together. 
Richard had well-nigh followed, and in that case would have been inevitably dashed to pieces. But discovering the danger ere it was too late, by a powerful effort which threw Merlin upon his haunches, he pulled him back on the very brink of the pit. The young man shuddered as he gazed into the depths of the quarry, and saw the jagged points and heaps of broken stone that would have received him. But he looked in vain for the old witch, whose mangled body, together with that of the hound, he expected to behold. And he then asked himself whether the chase might not have been a snare set for him by the hag and her familiar, with the intent of luring him to destruction. If so, he had been providentially preserved. Quitting the pit, his first idea was to proceed to Barley, which was now only a few hundred yards off, to make inquiries respecting Mother Chattox, and ascertain whether she really dwelt there. But on further consideration, he judged it best to return without further delay to Goldshaw, lest his friends, ignorant as to what had befallen him, might become alarmed on his account. But he resolved, as soon as he had disposed of the business in hand, to prosecute his search after the hag. Riding rapidly, he soon cleared the ground between the quarry and Goldshaw Lane, and was about to enter the latter, when the sound of voices singing a funeral hymn caught his ear, and pausing to listen to it, he beheld a little procession, the meaning of which he readily comprehended, wending its slow and melancholy way in this same direction as himself. It was headed by four men in deep mourning, bearing upon their shoulders a small coffin covered with a pall, and having a garland of white flowers in front of it. Behind them followed about a dozen young men and maidens, likewise in mourning, walking two and two with gait and aspect of unfeigned affliction. Many of the women, though merely rustics, seemed to possess considerable personal attraction, but their features were in a great measure concealed by their large white kerchiefs, disposed in the form of hoods. All carried sprigs of rosemary and bunches of flowers in their hands. Plaintive was the hymn they sang, and their voices, though untaught, were sweet and touching, and went to the heart of the listener. Much moved, Richard suffered the funeral procession to precede him along the deep and devious lane, and as it winded beneath the hedges, the sight was inexpressibly affecting. Fastening his horse to a tree at the end of the lane, Richard followed on foot. Notice of the approach of the train having been given in the village, all the inhabitants flocked forth to meet it, and there was scarcely a dry eye among them. Arrived within a short distance of the church, the coffin was met by the minister, attended by the clerk, behind whom came Roger Nowell, Nicholas, and the rest of the company from the hostel. With great difficulty, poor Baldwin could be brought to take his place as chief mourner. These arrangements completed, the body of the ill-fated girl was borne into the churchyard, the minister reading the solemn texts appointed for the occasion, and leading the way to the grave, beside which stood the sexton, together with the beadle of Goldshaw, and Sparshot. The coffin was then laid on trestles, and amidst profound silence, broken only by the sobs of the mourners, the service was read, and preparation made for lowering the body into the grave. Then it was that poor Baldwin, with a wild, heart-piercing cry, flung himself upon the shell containing all that remained of his lost treasure, and could with difficulty be removed from it by Bess and Soodle, both of whom were in attendance. 
the bunches of flowers and sprigs of rosemary having been laid upon the coffin by the maidens, amidst loud sobbing and audibly expressed lamentations from the bystanders, it was let down into the grave, and earth thrown over it. Earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. The ceremony was over. The mourners betook themselves to the little hostel, and the spectators slowly dispersed. But the bereaved father still lingered, unable to tear himself away. Leaning for support against the yew-trees, he fiercely bade Bess, who would have led him home with her, begone. The kind-hearted hostess complied in appearance, but remained nigh at hand, though concealed from view. Once more the dark cloud overshadowed the spirit of the wretched man. Once more the same infernal desire of vengeance possessed him. Once more he subjected himself to temptation. Striding to the foot of the grave, he raised his hand, and with terrible imprecations vowed to lay the murderess of his child as low as she herself was now laid. At that moment he felt an eye like a burning-glass fixed on him and looking up beheld the reeve of the forest standing on the further side of the grave. "'Kneel down and swear to be mine, and your wish shall be gratified,' said the reeve. Beside himself with grief and rage, Baldwin would have complied, but he was arrested by a powerful grasp. Fearing he was about to commit some rash act, Bess rushed forward and caught hold of his doublet. "'Bethink thee what thou hast just heard for it, minister, Richard.' she cried in a voice of solemn warning. Blessed are the dead that die of the Lord, for they rest for their labours, and again suffer us not at our last hour for any pains of death so far for thee. O oh, Richard, dear, for the love thou hast for that poor child who is now delivered from the burden of flesh, and dwelling in joy and felicity with God and his angels, thunder in danger thy precious soul. Pray that thou mayst depart hence in the Lord, with whom are the souls of the faithful, and Mary's, I trust, among that number. Pray that thy end may be like hers. Oh, Connor, pray, Bess, replied the miller, striking his breast. The Lord has turned his face from me. Because thy heart is hardened, Richard, she replied, that nourishing both black and wicked thoughts. "'Cast them off our journey, and come home with me.' Meanwhile the reeve had sprung across the grave. "'Thy answer at once,' he said, grasping the miller's arm and breathing the words in his ears. "'Vengeance is in thy power, a word, and it is thine.' The miller groaned bitterly. He was sorely tempted. "'What's that monsanto did, Richard?' inquired Bess. "'Oh, don't ask, but tear me away.' he answered. "'I'm lost else.' "'Let him lay a finger on you if he dare,' said Bess sturdily. "'Leave him alone. You don't know who he is,' whispered the miller. "'I can partly guess,' she rejoined. "'But I care neither for Mon nor Dale when I'm racked in rightly. Come along with me, Richard.' "'Fool!' cried the reeve in the same low tone as before. "'You will lose your revenge.' "'But you will not escape me.' And he turned away, while Bess almost carried the trembling and enfeebled Miller towards the hostel. Roger Nowell and his friends had only waited the conclusion of the funeral to set forth, and their horses being in residence, they mounted them on leaving the churchyard, 
and rode slowly along the lane leading towards Rough Lee. The melancholy scene they had witnessed, and the afflicting circumstances connected with it, had painfully affected the party, and little conversation occurred until they were overtaken by Parson Holden, who, having been made acquainted with their errand by Nicholas, was desirous of accompanying them. Soon after this, also, the reeve of the forest joined them, and on seeing him, Richard sternly demanded why he had aided Mother Chattox in her flight from the churchyard, and what had become of her. "'You are entirely mistaken, sir,' replied the reeve, with affected astonishment. "'I have seen nothing whatever of the old hag, and would rather lend a hand in her capture than a better flight. I hold all witches in abhorrence, and Mother Chattox especially so.' Hmm, "'Your horse looks fresh enough, certainly,' said Richard, somewhat shaken in his suspicions. "'Where have you been during our stay at Goldshaw? You did not put up at the hostel.' "'I went to Farmer Johnson's,' replied the reeve, "'and you will find upon inquiry that my horse has not been out of his stables for the last hour. I myself have been loitering about Bess's Grange and farmyard, as your grooms will testify, for they have seen me.' "'Hush!' exclaimed Richard. I suppose I must credit assertions made with such confidence, but I could have sworn I saw you ride off with the hag behind you. <laughs> I hope I shall never be caught in such bad company, sir, replied the reeve with a laugh. If I ride off with any one, it shall not be with an old witch, depend upon it. Though by no means satisfied with the explanation, Richard was forced to be content with it, but he thought he would address a few more questions to the reeve. "'Have you any knowledge,' he said, "'when the boundaries of Pendle Forest were first settled and appointed?' "'The first perambulation was made by Henry de Lacy "'about the middle of the twelfth century,' replied the reeve. "'Pendle Forest, you may be aware, sir, "'is one of the four divisions of the great forest of Blackburnshire, "'of which the Laces were lords, "'the three other divisions being Accrington, Trawden, and Rossendale, "'and it comprehends an extent of about twenty-five miles, "'part of which you have traversed to-day.' At a later period, namely in 1311, after the death of another Henry de Lacy, Earl of Lincoln, the last of his line, and one of the bravest of Edward I's barons, an inquisition was held in the forest, and it was subdivided into eleven vicaries, one of which is the place to which you are bound, roughly. The learned Sir Edward Coke defined a vicary to signify a dairy, observed Potts. Here it means the farm and land as well, replied the reeve, and the word booth, which is in general use in this district, signifies the mansion erected upon such vaccary, Mistress Nutter's residence, for instance, being nothing more than the booth of Rough Lee, while a lawnd, another local term, is a park enclosed within the forest for the preservation of the deer and the convenience of the chase, and of such enclosures we have two, namely the old and new lawnd. By a commission in the reign of Henry the Seventh, these vaccaries, originally granted only to tenants at will, were converted into copyholds of inheritance. But, and here is a legal point for your consideration, Master Potts, as it seems very questionable where the titles obtained under letters patent are secure, and uh, not unreasonable fears are entertained by the holders of lands, lest they should be seized and appropriated by the Crown. "'Aha! An excellent idea, Master Eve!' exclaimed Potts, his little eyes twinkling with pleasure. "'Our gracious and sagacious monarch would grasp at the suggestion. Ay, and grasp at the lands, too. <laughs> Many thanks for the hint, good Reeve. I will not fail to profit by it. 
If their titles are uncertain, the landowners would be glad to compromise the matter with the Crown, even to the value of half their estates, rather than lose the whole.' "'Most assuredly they would,' replied the reeve. "'And furthermore, they would pay the lawyer well who could manage the matter adroitly for them. This would answer your purpose better than hunting up witches, Master Potts. "'One pursuit does not interfere with the other in the slightest degree, worthy reeve,' observed Potts. I cannot consent to give up my quest of the witches. My honour is concerned in their extermination. But to return to Pendle Forest, the greater part of it has been disafforested, I presume. It has, replied the other, and we are now in one of the purlieus. Purely is the better word, most excellent reeve, said Potts. I tell you thus much, because you appear to be a man of learning. Manwood, our great authority in such matters, declares our Purali to be a certain territory of ground adjoining unto the forest, mirrored and bounded, with immovable marks, mirrors, and boundaries, known by matter of record only. And as it applies to the perambulation we are about to make, I may as well repeat what the same learned writer further saith touching marks, mirrors, and boundaries, and how they may be known. For although, he saith, a forest doth lie open, and not enclosed with hedge, ditch, pale, or stone wall, which some other enclosures have. Yet in the eye and consideration of the law, the same hath as strong an enclosure by these marks, mirrors, and boundaries, as if there were a brick wall to encircle the same. Marks, learned reeve, are deemed unremovable. Primo, quia omnes metae forestiae sunt integrae domino regi and those who take them away are punishable for the trespass at the assizes of the forest. Secundo, because the marks are things that cannot be stirred, as rivers, highways, hills, and the like. Now such unremovable marks, mirrors, and boundaries we have between the estate of my excellent client, Master Roger Noel, and that of Mistress Nutter, so that the matter at issue will be easily decided. A singular smile crossed the reeve's countenance, but he made no observation. "'Unless the lady can turn aside streams, remove hills, and pluck up huge trees, we shall win,' pursued Potts, with a chuckle. Again the reeve smiled, but he forbore to speak. "'You talk of marks, mirrors, and boundaries, Master Potts,' remarked Richard. "'Are not the words synonymous?' "'Not precisely so, sir,' replied the attorney. "'There is a slight difference in their signification, which I will explain to you. The words of the statute are—' Metas meras et bundas. Now meta, or mark, is an object rising from the ground, as a church, a wall, or a tree. Mera, or mere, is the space or interval between the forest and the land adjoining, whereupon the mark may chance to stand. And burda is the boundary lying on a level with the forest, as a river, a highway, a pool, or a bog. I comprehend the distinction, replied Richard. And now, as we are on the subject, he added to the reeve, I would gladly know the precise nature of your office. My duty, replied the other, is to range daily throughout all the purlieus, or purlies, as Master Potts more properly terms them, and disafforested lands, and inquire into all trespasses and offences against vert or venison, and present them at the king's next court of attachment or swainmote. It is also my business to drive into the forest such wild beasts as have strayed from it to attend to the lawing and expeditation of mastiffs, and to raise hue and cry against any malefactors or trespassers within the forest. "'I will give you the exact words of the statute,' said Potts. "'Si quis fideret malefactores infra metas forestiae, 
debitilos capere secundum posse suum et si non possit debit levare utisium et clamore and the penalty refusing to follow hue and cry is a heavy fine i would that that part of your duty relating to the hock sinewing and lawing of mastiffs could be discontinued said richard i grieve to see a noble animal so mutilated in boland forest as you are probably aware sir rejoined the reeve only the larger mastiffs are lamed a small stirrup or gauge being kept by the master forester squire robert parker of browsholme and the dog whose foot will pass through it escapes mutilation uh, the practice is a cruel one and i would it were abolished with some of our other barbarous forest laws observed richard while this conversation had been going on the party had proceeded well on their way for some time the road which consisted of little more than tracks of wheels along the turf led along a plain thrown up into heathy hillocks and then passing through a thicket evidently part of the old forest it brought them to the foot of a hill which they mounted and descended into another valley here they came upon pendle water and while skirting its banks could see at a great depth below the river rushing over its rocky bed like an alpine torrent the scenery had now begun to assume a savage and sombre character the deep rift through which the river ran was evidently the result of some terrible convulsion of the earth and the rocky strata were strangely and fantastically displayed on the further side the banks rose up precipitously consisting for the most part of bare cliffs though now and then a tree would root itself in some crevice below this the stream sank over a wide shelf of rock in a broad full cascade and boiled and foamed in the stony basin that received it after which grown less impetuous it ran tranquilly on for a couple of hundred yards and was then artificially restrained by a dam which diverting it in part from its course caused it to turn the wheels of a mill here was the abode of the unfortunate richard baldwin and here had blossomed forth the fair flower so untimely gathered an air of gloom hung over this once cheerful spot its very beauty contributing to this saddening effect the mill-race flowed swiftly and brightly on but the wheel was stopped windows and doors were closed and death kept his grim holiday undisturbed no one was to be seen about the premises nor was any sound heard except the bark of the lonely watchdog. Many a sorrowing glance was cast at this forlorn habitation as the party rode past it, and many a sigh was heaved for the poor girl who had so lately been its pride and ornament. But if any one had noticed the bitter sneer curling the reeve's lip, nor caught the malignant fire gleaming in his eye, it would scarcely have been thought that he shared in the general regret. After the cavalcade had passed the mill, one or two other cottages appeared on the near side of the river, while the opposite banks began to be clothed with timber. The glen became more and more contracted, and a stone bridge crossed the stream, near which, and on the same side of the river as the party, stood a cluster of cottages constituting the little village of Rough Lee. On reaching the bridge, Mistress Nutter's habitation came in view, and it was pointed out by Nicholas to Potts, who contemplated it with much curiosity. In his eyes it seemed exactly adapted to its owner, and formed to hide dark and guilty deeds. It was a stern, sombre-looking mansion, built of a dark grey stone, with tall square chimneys and windows with heavy mullions. High stone walls, hoary and moss-grown, ran round the gardens and courts. Except on the side of the river, 
where there was a terrace overlooking the stream, and forming a pleasant summer's walk. At the back of the house were a few ancient oaks and sycamores, and in the gardens were some old clipped yews. Part of this ancient mansion is still standing, and retains much of its original character, though subdivided and tenanted by several humble families. The garden is cut up into paddocks, and the approach environed by a labyrinth of low stone walls, while miserable sheds and other buildings are appended to it. The terrace is wholly obliterated, and the grange and offices are pulled down, but sufficient is still left of the place to give an idea of its pristine appearance and character. Its situation is striking and peculiar. In front rises a high hill, forming the last link of the chain of Pendle, and looking upon Barrowford and Colne on the further side of which, and therefore not discernible from the mansion, stood Malkin Tower. At the period in question, the lower part of this hill was well wooded and washed by Pendle water, which swept past it through banks picturesque and beautiful, though not so bold and rocky as those in the neighbourhood of the mill. In the rear of the house the ground gradually rose for more than a quarter of a mile, when it obtained a considerable elevation. Following the course of the stream, and looking down the gorge, another hill appeared, so that the house was completely shut in by mountainous acclivities. In winter, when the snow lay on the heights, or when the mists hung upon them for weeks together, or descended in continuous rain, Rough Lee was sufficiently desolate, and seemed cut off from all communication with the outer world. But at the season when the party beheld it, though the approaches were rugged and difficult, and almost inaccessible except to the horseman or pedestrian, bidding defiance to any vehicle, except of the strongest construction, still the place was not without a certain charm, mainly, however, derived from its seclusion. The scenery was stern and sombre, the hills were dark and dreary, but the very wildness of the place was attractive and the old house, with its grey walls, its lofty chimneys, its gardens with their clipped yews, and its rook-haunted trees, harmonised well with all around it. As the party drew near the house, the gates were thrown open by an old porter with two other servants, who besought them to stay and partake of some refreshment. But Roger Nowell haughtily and peremptorily declined his invitation, and rode on, and the others, though some of them would fain have complied, followed him. Scarcely were they gone than James Device, who had been in the garden, issued from the gate and speeded after them. Passing through a close at the back of the mansion, and tracking a short narrow lane edged by stone walls, the party, which had received some accessions from the cottages of Rough Lee, as well as from the huts on the hillside, again approached the river, and proceeded along its banks. The newcomers, being all of them tenants of Mrs. Nutter, and acting apparently under the direction of James Device, who had now joined the troop, stoutly and loudly maintained that the lady would be found right in the inquiry, with the exception of one old man named Henry Mitton, and he shook his head gravely when appealed to by Jem, and could by no means be induced to join him in the clamour. Notwithstanding this demonstration, Roger Nowell and his legal adviser were both very sanguine as to the result of the survey being in their favour, and Master Potts turned to ascertain from Sparshot that the two plans which had been rolled up and consigned to his custody were quite safe. Meanwhile, the party, having followed the course of the Pendle Water through the glen for about half a mile, during which they kept close to the brawling current, entered a little thicket, and then, striking off on the left, passed over the foot of a hill, and came to the edge of a wide moor, where a halt was called by Noel. 
It being now announced that they were on the confines of the disputed property, preparations were immediately made for the survey. The plans were taken out of a quiver in which they had been carefully deposited by Sparshot, and handed to Potts, who, giving the one to Roger Nowell and the other to Nicholas, and opening his memorandum-book, declared that all was ready, and the two leaders rode slowly forward, while the rest of the troops followed, their curiosity being stimulated to the highest pitch. Presently Roger Nowell again stopped, and pointed to a woody break. "'We are now come,' he said, "'to a wood forming part of my property.' and which from an eruption caused by a spring that took place in it many years ago is called burst clough exactly sir exactly cried potts burst clough i have it here landmarks five grey stones lying apart at a distance of one hundred yards or thereabouts and giving you sir twenty acres of moorland is it not so master nicholas the marks are such as i have described eh they are sir replied the squire, with this slight difference in the allotment of the land, namely that Mistress Nutter claims the twenty acres, while she assigns you only ten. Ten devils!' cried Roger Nowell furiously. Twenty acres are mine, and I will have them.' "'To the proof, then,' rejoined Nicholas. "'The first of the grey stones is here.' "'And the second is on the left in that hollow,' cried Roger Nowell. "'Come on, my masters, come on.' "'Ah, come on!' cried Nicholas. This perambulation will be rare sport. Who wins for a piece of gold, cousin Richard? Nay, I will place no wager on the event, replied the young man. Well, as you please, cried the squire. But I would lay five to one that Mistress Nutter beats the magistrate. Meanwhile, the whole troop having set forward, they soon arrived at the second stone. Grey and moss-grown, it was deeply embedded in the soil and to all appearance had rested undisturbed for many a year. "'You measure from the clough, I presume, sir?' remarked Potts to Noel. "'To be sure,' replied the magistrate. "'But how is this? This stone seems to me much nearer the clough than it used to be.' "'Yeah, so it done, Mester,' observed old Mitten. "'It does not appear to have been disturbed at all events,' cried Nicholas, dismounting and examining it. Oh, "'It would seem not.' cried Noel, and yet it certainly is not in its old place. "'You are mistaken, mester,' observed Jem Device. "'I know it land well, and this stone has stood where it does for last twenty year, ain't it, neighbours? "'Yeah, yeah,' responded several voices. "'Well, let us go on to the next stone,' said Potts, looking rather blank. Accordingly they went forward, the hinds exchanging significant looks, and Roger Nowell and Nicholas carefully examining their respective map. "'These landmarks exactly tally with my plan,' said the squire, as they arrived at the third stone. "'But not with mine,' said Nowell. "'This stone ought to be two hundred yards to the right. Some trickery has been practised.' "'Impossible!' exclaimed the squire. "'These ponderous stones could never have been moved.' "'Besides, there are several persons here who know every inch of the ground, "'and will give you their unbiased testimony. "'What say you, my men? Are these the old boundary stones?' "'All answered in the affirmative, except old Mitten, "'who still raised a dissenting voice. "'They bid the old boundary marks, sure enough,' he said. "'But they're known their old places. "'It is quite clear that the twenty acres belong to Mistress Nutter.' observed Nicholas, and that you must content yourself with ten, Master Noel. Make an entry to that effect, Master Potts, unless you will have the ground measured. 
"'No, it is needless,' replied the magistrate sharply. "'Let us go on.' During this survey, some of the features of the country appeared changed to the rustics, but how or in what way they could not precisely tell, and they were easily induced by James Device to give their testimony in Mistress Nutter's favour. A small rivulet was now reached, and another halt being called upon its sedgy banks, the plans were again consulted. "'What have we here, Master Potts? Marks or boundaries?' inquired Richard, with a smile. "'Both,' replied Potts angrily. "'This rivulet, which I take to be Mossbrook, is a boundary, and that sheepfold and the two posts standing in a line with it are marks. But hold, how is this?' he cried, regarding the plan in dismay. "'The five acres of wasteland should be on the left of the brook.' "'It would doubtless suit Master Noel better if it were so,' said Nicholas. "'But as they chance to be on the right, they belong to Mistress Nutter. I merely speak from the plan.' "'Your plan is not, sir,' cried Noel furiously. "'By what foul practice these changes have been wrought, I pretend not to say, though I can give a good guess. But the audacious witch who has thus deluded me shall bitterly rue it.' "'Old, old, Master Noel,' replied Nicholas, "'I can make great allowance for your anger, which is natural considering your disappointment, but I will not permit such unwarrantable insinuations to be thrown out against Mistress Nutter. You agreed to abide by Sir Ralph Atchison's award, and you must not complain if it is made against you. Do you imagine that this stream could have changed its course in a single night, or that yon sheepfold has been removed to the further side of it?' "'I do,' replied Noel. "'And so do I,' cried Potts. "'It has been accomplished by the aid of—' But feeling himself checked by a glance from the reeve, he stammered out, um, "'Of Mother Demdike.' "'You declared just now that marks, mears, and boundaries were unremovable, Master Potts,' said the reeve, with a sneer. "'You have altered your opinion.' The crestfallen attorney was dumb. Master Richard Noel must find some better plea than the imputation of witchcraft to set aside Mistress Nutter's claim, observed Richard. "'Yea, that I mun,' cried James Device, and the hinds who supported him. The magistrate bit his lip with vexation. "'There is witchcraft in it, I repeat,' he said. "'Yea, that there be,' responded Old Mitten. But the words were scarcely uttered when he was felled to the ground by the bludgeon of James Device. "'I'd serve thee at same way for two pins,' said Jem, regarding Potts with a savage look. "'No violence, Jem,' cried Nicholas authoritatively. "'You do harm to the cause you would serve by your outrageous conduct. "'Beg pardon, squire, but I winna hear lies told about Mistress Nutter.' "'No one shall speak ill on her here,' cried the hinds. Eh, "'Well, Master Noel,' said Nicholas. Are you willing to concede the matter at once, or will you pursue the investigation further? I will ascertain the extent of the mischief done to me before I stop, rejoined the magistrate angrily. Forward, then, cried Nicholas. Our course now lies along this footpath, with a croft on the left and an old barn on the right. Here the plans correspond, I believe, Master Potts. The attorney yielded a reluctant assent. "'There's a small spring and trough by the right, and we come to a limestone quarry, then by a plantation called Cat Gallows Wood, so named because some troublesome mouser has been hanged there, I suppose, and next by a deep moss-pit called Swallow Hall. All right, eh, Master Potts? We shall now enter upon Worston Moor, 
and come to the hut occupied by Jem Device, who can, it is presumed, speak positively as to its situation. "'Very true,' cried Potts, as if struck by an idea. "'Let the rascal step forward. I wish to put a few questions to him regarding his tenement. I think I shall catch him now,' he added in a low tone to Noel. "'Here I be,' cried Jem, stepping up with an insolent and defying look. "'What do you want with me?' First of all, I would caution you to speak the truth.' commenced Potts impressively, as I shall take down your answers in my memorandum-book, and they will be produced against you hereafter. "'If he utters a falsehood, I will commit him,' said Roger Knoll sharply. "'Speak civilly now, and give you a civil answer,' rejoined Jem, in a surly tone. "'But I am not to be browbeaten. First, then, is your hut in sight?' "'No,' replied Jem. "'But you can point out its situation, I suppose?' pursued the attorney. "'Certainly I can,' replied Jem, without heeding a significant glance cast at him by the reeve. "'It stands beyond your cloth at side at Moor we are rendly front.' "'Now, mind what you say, sirrah,' cried Potts. "'You are quite sure that the hut is behind the clough, and the rindle, uh, which being interpreted from your base vernacular, I believe means a gutter in front of it?' The reeve coughed slightly, but failed to attract Jem's attention, who replied quickly that he was quite sure of the circumstances. "'Very well,' said Potts. "'You have all heard the answer. He is quite sure as to what he states. Now, then, I suppose you can tell whether the hut looks to the north or the south, whether the door opens to the moor or to the clough, and whether there is a path leading from it to a spot called Hook Cliff?' At this moment Jem caught the eye of the reeve, and the look given him by the latter completely puzzled him. Oh, "'I don't greatly recollect which way it looks,' he answered. "'What, you prevaricating rascal! Do you pretend to say you do not know which way your own dwelling stands?' thundered Roger Nowell. "'Speak out, sirrah, or Sparshot shall take you into custody at once.' "'I'm ready, your worship,' replied the beadle. Uh, "'Well, then,' said Jem, imperfectly comprehending the signs made to him by the reeve. "'Not looks neither to the south, nor to the north, but to the west. It faces more, and there is a path through it to Hook Cliff.' As he finished speaking, he saw from the reeve's angry gestures that he had made a mistake, but it was now too late to recall his words. However, he determined to make an effort. Uh, "'Now I bethink me, I'm, I'm no sure that I'm right,' he said. "'You must be sure, sirrah,' said Roger Nowell, bending his awful brows upon him. "'You cannot be mistaken as to your own dwelling. Take down his description, Master Potts, and proceed with your interrogatories, if you have any more to put to him.' "'I wish to ask him whether he has been at home to-day,' said Potts. "'Answer, fellow!' thundered the magistrate. Before replying, Jem would fain have consulted the reeve, but the latter had turned away in displeasure. Not knowing whether a lie would serve his turn, and fearing he might be contradicted by some of the bystanders, he said he had not been at home for two days, but had returned the night before at a late hour from Whaley, and had slept at Rough Lee. "'Then you cannot tell what changes may have taken place in your dwelling during your absence?' said Potts. "'Of course not,' replied Jane. "'But I don't see how any changes can happen in so short a time.' "'But I do, if you do not, sirrah,' said Potts. 
be pleased to give me your plan, Master Noel. I have a further question to ask him, he added, after consulting it for a moment. I will answer no more, replied Jem gruffly. You will answer whatever questions Master Potts may put to you, or you are taken into custody, said the magistrate sternly. Jem would have willingly beaten a retreat, but being surrounded by the two grooms and Sparshot, who only wanted a sign from Noel to secure him, or knock him down if he attempted to fly, he gave a surly intimation that he was ready to speak. "'You are aware that a dyke intersects the heath before us, namely Worston Moor?' said Potts. Jem nodded his head. "'I must request particular attention to your plan as I proceed, Master Nicholas,' pursued the attorney. "'I now wish to be informed by you, James Device, whether that dyke cuts through the middle of the moor or traverses the side, and, if so, which side? I desire also to be informed where it commences and where it ends.' Jem scratched his head and reflected for a moment. "'The matter does not require consideration, sirrah.' cried Noel. Oh, you must have an instant answer. So you shan, replied Jem. Well, then, dark begins near a little mound called Turnhead, about hundred yards from our dwelling, and runs across the easterly side at Moor till it reaches Noel Bottom. You will swear this? cried Potts, scarcely able to conceal his satisfaction. Swear it? Ah, replied Jem. Ah, we'll all swear it, chorused the hinds. "'I am delighted to hear it,' cried Potts, radiant with delight, "'for your description corresponds exactly with Master Noel's plan, "'and differs materially from that of Mistress Nutter, "'as Squire Nicholas Asherton will tell you.' "'I cannot deny it,' replied Nicholas, in some confusion. "'Ah, I should have said westerly instead of easterly,' cried Jem. "'But you'll puzzle a man so with your loyally questions "'that he done not know his right hand from his left.' "'Yeah, yeah, we are meant to say westerly,' added the hinds. "'You have sworn to the contrary,' cried Noel. "'Secure him,' he added to the grooms and Sparshot, "'and do not let him go till we have completed the survey. "'We will now see how far the reality corresponds with the description, "'and what further devilish tricks have been played with the property.' Upon this the troop was again put in motion, James Device walking between the two grooms, with Sparshot behind him. So wonderfully elated was Master Potts by the successful hit he had just made, and which in his opinion quite counterbalanced his previous failure, that he could not help communicating his satisfaction to Flint, and this in such manner that the fiery little animal, who had been for some time exceedingly tractable and good-natured, took umbrage at it, and threatened to dislodge him if he did not desist from his vagaries, delivering the hint so clearly and unmistakably that it was not lost upon his rider, who endeavoured to calm him down. In proportion as the attorney's spirits rose, those of James Device and his followers sank, for they felt they were caught in a snare from which they could not easily escape. By this time they had reached the borders of Worston Moor, which had been hitherto concealed by a piece of rising ground covered with gorse and brushwood, and Jem's hut, together with the clough, the rindle, and the dyke, came distinctly into view. The plans were again produced, and on comparing them it appeared that the various landmarks were precisely situated as laid down by Mistress Nutter, while their disposition was entirely at variance with James Device's statement. Master Potts then rose in his stirrups, and calling for silence, addressed the assemblage. 
"'There stands the hut,' he said, "'and instead of being behind the clough it is on one side of it. "'While the door certainly does not face the moor, "'neither is the rindle in front of the dwelling or near it, "'while the dyke, which is the main and important boundary between the two properties, "'runs above two hundred yards further west than formerly. "'Now, observe the original position of these marks, mirrors, and boundaries, "'that is, of this hut, this clough, this rindle, and this dyke.' exactly corresponds with the description given of them by the man device who dwells in the place and who is therefore a person most likely to be accurately acquainted with the country and yet though he has only been absent two days changes the most surprising have taken place changes so surprising indeed that he scarcely knows the way to his own house and certainly never could find the path which he has described to me as leading to hook cliff since it is entirely obliterated observe further all these extraordinary and incomprehensible changes in the appearance of the country and in the situation of the marks mirrors and boundaries are favourable to mistress nutter and give her the advantage she seeks over my honoured and honourable client they are set down in mistress nutter's plan it is true but when let me ask you was that plan prepared in my opinion it was prepared first and the changes in the land made after it by diabolical fraud and contrivance i am sorry to have to declare this to you master nicholas and to you master richard but such is my firm conviction and mine also added Noel. and i have charged mistress nutter with sorcery and witchcraft and on my return i will immediately issue a warrant for her arrest Sparshot! I command you to attach the person of James Device for aiding and abetting her in her foul practices. I will help you to take charge of him, said the reeve, riding forward. Probably this was done to give Jem a chance of escape, and if so, it was successful, for as the reeve pushed among his captors and thrust Sparshot aside, the ruffian broke from them, and running with great swiftness across the moor, plunged into the clough and disappeared. Nicholas and Richard instantly gave chase, as did Master Potts, but the fugitive led them over the treacherous bog in such a manner as to baffle all pursuit. A second disaster here overtook the unlucky attorney, and damped him in his hour of triumph. Flint, who had apparently not forgotten or forgiven the joyous kicks he had recently received from the attorney's heels, came to a sudden halt by the side of the quagmire, and putting down his head and flinging up his legs, cast him into it. While Potts was scrambling out, the animal galloped off in the direction of the clough, and had just reached it when he was seized upon by James Device, who suddenly started from the covert and vaulted upon his back. End of chapter 7